thinks what he just shared with you this morning, as is the case with a lot of us. I mean, all of us have our stories uh, to share, and, and God's in the midst of them. God is right there in the midst of our stories a- at work. But the thing that resonated with me when I was meeting with them was, was Paul's continual belief in and message to Evan that God hasn't given up on you. God has a plan for you, Evan. And to see this happen this morning, after all he's been through, is just testimony to the fact that, that Paul was speaking prophetically. He had a true plan for Evan. Evan's not perfect. He's not going to be perfect. He's going to make mistakes. Part of our job as a congregation is to be there and to support and to pray for and to encourage new believers as they grow in their discipleship uh, of the, you know, with the Lord. So anyway, awesome stuff. A couple of announcements. Um, just want to real quick make. I'm, I'm trying to fill in some time so these guys can get out and sit down. Um, first, back in the back, some sign-ups. There are sign-ups for Zacchaeus dinners. Now, I have one sign-up for the month of May, and we're going to continue to do Zacchaeus dinners. I want to meet all of you eventually. I want to be in all of your homes eventually. So please sign up. It, you'll notice that the dates are Tuesdays. It doesn't have to be on a Tuesday. I just picked Tuesday because that's the, the night that I typically have the least going on. But uh, please sign up uh, and have Christy and me into your home so that we can get to know you uh, and we can hopefully minister better to you. So the sign-up for that's back there. Also, men's breakfast sign-up uh, for next month is up there, guys. We had a great men's breakfast yesterday. Jeff Wilkinson just rocked the Bible study. It was really, really good. Barry made us good food. It was just great fellowship. Um, time together with brothers in the Lord. Also, there's a sign-up for ushers back there. and I know Chris talked about this last week, but we do need ushers, and it's a great opportunity, again, for people to engage in entry-level ministry, just getting to know one another, helping people around, handing out bulletins. And so it's, it's wonderful when people just come forth. There's a, there's a scripture that talks about when they were building the temple in the wilderness, how the people just came forth willingly and gave of their time and of their treasure until the, the builders finally had to say, oh, we've got enough. You, you guys can stop giving. That's the kind of church I want to build here where everybody's just not having to be asked, but just out there doing. So anyway, uh, please sign up for those things. And... We're going to have a real short Bible study. It's on um, Romans chapter 9, the sovereignty of God, man's free will. I've solved the, the, the riddle. And so, you know, the theologians have been dealing with this for 2,000 years, but God finally revealed it to me. No. You know, it's one of those things, uh, God's sovereignty and, and this passage uh, of Scripture, a lot of people get into it and they stumble on it. And we'll talk a little bit about that. I'm not going to keep you guys too long. Uh, there's a lot to say. But uh, suffice it to say that when you're in relationship with the creator of the universe, the one who is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, that you're not going to be able to figure out everything about him. He's revealed a lot of himself to us through this word. But there are aspects of an infinite God that finite man is not going to be able to fully comprehend. 
And this is one of those areas. How is God sovereign, and yet how does man have free will? And of course, there are a variety of theological positions. I was chuckling to myself as the kids were responding to Steve's questions this morning. I was thinking, well, they're just right there in with all of the theologians and all the seminaries. Yeah, it's by works. No, it's by faith. You know, predestination. You know, it's, it's, it's all there. So, um, good job, Paul. Thank you, sir. Love you, bro. Yeah, another one. Let's do that. Wouldn't it be great if we were doing baptisms every week? People just coming to the Lord left and right. One of the things I'd like to do, and um, as we were setting up the baptistry uh, on Thursday or Friday, I can't remember, Thursday I guess it was, the water was really cold. And I was thinking, I had told Chris that this summer I was hoping to do some baptisms down at the, the river, but I'm not sure anybody would come to the Lord then. <laughs> it might be a little too cold. A little too cold. So, Romans chapter 9. Chris last week taught on 31, verses 31 through 39 in chapter 8, sort of this soaring conclusion to uh, the doctrine of justification by faith, that we are saved by grace through faith, that it's all God's work, that it's not of us. We have been chosen by God to be on his team. And, and if God has um, graciously given us, given us all things, who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? You know, just this great, powerful conclusion to the doctrine of justification by faith. So the logical question then becomes, okay, if, if God has now chosen the Gentiles to be saved by grace through faith, what becomes of the nation of Israel? That's what Paul begins to address in chapter nine, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And it's an in-depth study, and I would love to have a lot more time to talk about it, um, but hopefully I will pick your interest a little bit, and you'll do some more in-depth study. Some of you have wrestled with this topic. I know some of you guys who, who love study of the Word, love to get into your Bibles, you've wrestled with this whole notion of God's sovereignty, God's choice in election. And yet, with that, how do we still have a free will to exercise? That's addressed in this chapter. But it's also addressing God's faithfulness. God has made promises to the nation and to the people of Israel that he will fulfill. And in chapter 11, at the conclusion, Paul talks about that. Paul talks about the, the regathering of Israel into the fold of faith. But right now, at the point that he's writing this, Israel has rejected the Messiah. It says in John chapter 1 that he came to his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as did receive him, to them he gave the power to become sons of God. So Israel rejected him. They cried out, crucify him. And Jesus then, the gospel, very soon after that, began to go out to the Gentiles who readily accepted it. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's anguishing over the fact that Israel has rejected the Messiah, the one who was to come. Verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that 
I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So Paul has this deep anguish for the nation of Israel because he recognizes that they did not see their Messiah when the Messiah came. They turned away from him. And yet God had given them all of these great uh, blessings, uh, his presence with them, their adoption to sonship, the covenants, the divine glory. All of these things were the nation of Israel's. And yet Israel did not, we will see in a moment, receive those things by faith. They took a, upon themselves a, a special relationship with God that they thought excluded everyone else. And they did not receive that relationship with God by faith. Rather, they received it and engaged upon it through works. Just a real quick aside, verse 5 is a great uh, verse for you to use with the Jehovah Witnesses that come to your door, um, talking about the fact that Jesus is, as Messiah, also God over all. Because the Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, don't believe that Jesus Christ is, is the sovereign God, but in fact, he is. So, it is not as though God's word had failed. So all of these promises <clears throat> that God had made to Israel, all of the blessings that he had given to them are not going to fail. They are going to come to fruition. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, 1, that my word will go forth and it will accomplish for that for which I purpose it. So anytime God says something is going to come to pass, you can take it to the bank. It's going to come to pass. And God has made promises to Israel that will come to pass. So Paul is saying here, God's word has not failed, even though it appears at this point in time that Israel has rejected her Messiah. The fact is that God is going to gather her in, and Paul's going to set that out here in the course of the next three chapters. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So he's pointing out that, in fact, Israel's blessings, the promises to Israel, came to those in Israel who received it, not as a matter of works, but as a matter of faith. They are his, uh, not all of his descendants, excuse me, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Of course, we all know the story of Isaac. Abraham had been promised a son when he was 75 years old, 13 years later, or 11 years later, rather, uh, no son. So Sarah gives Abraham her maid, Hagar, and he has a son, Ishmael, through him. But that is the son of the flesh. And here Paul is saying that God said it would be through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, that the promise will come. And when Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 90, they had Isaac. Against all odds, a son was born to them. And so that was the son of faith. And this... this notion is developed more fully in, in the book of Galatians. Uh, so we won't talk about it there, but you might read through Galatians because it talks about Isaac and Ishmael, the spirit and the flesh. In other words, though, it's not as, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Now, Abraham had a lot of kids. You, he had Isaac and Ishmael, but he had a lot of other sons, too, through different concubines. But it's Isaac, the son of faith, through whom the promise would come. And so he says, For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. So 
the Jews could read up to this point and think, yeah, Isaac, he's our father, not Ishmael. And so God sovereignly chose that it would be Isaac through whom the promise would come. But Paul takes it a step further. He's not going to let the, the, the Jews pat themselves on the back. Verse 10, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had anything done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written in Malachi, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So here, from the, the seed of Isaac, the, the son of promise, his two children one of those is also selected by God in advance before anything good or bad had been done. Jacob was chosen the younger over the elder. Jacob I loved or preferred. Esau I hated or loved less. So what shall we say then? Is God unjust for choosing? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It doesn't depend, therefore, on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and harden whom he wants to harden. Now, people start to stumble about right here. They say, well, hold it. If, if God chooses people and he hardens them, then how can he hold them accountable for their choices? gets a little more complicated. One of you will say to me, Paul writes, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But Paul answers from a position of, of logic, who are you then, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? So let's stop right there for a second. So God has, as the sovereign being, the prerogative of choice of election, of saying this is how things are going to happen. That's what Paul is talking about here. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He will harden whom he hardens. He is working in the affairs of men throughout human history to bring his will to pass. And I think most people can accept the notion of a sovereign God who's in control of everything. There's nothing that escapes God's notice. Nothing that ultimately God is not in control of. But does God override the choice of human beings? The ability that we have to make a free and full choice either to follow him or not to follow him. Does God override that? Some people will, will say that God has elected some to be saved and has elected some to be damned. That's not a position I believe that the Scriptures support. The Scripture does speak of a sovereign God, speak of a God who is in control of everything. And yet, the Scriptures also speak of the fact that that very sovereign God, in, in 1 Timothy, desires that all men 
should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In John 3.16, whom God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever should believe upon him should not perish but should have everlasting life. God is a God of love. Yes, he's sovereign, but he's a God of love. There's that passage that I think uh, confounds many people who, who take the position of, of, of a strict Calvinist and, and wrestle with because Jesus said as he approached Jerusalem, 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 how many times did I long to take you under my wings as a hen takes her chicks under hers and bring you to myself, but you would not. Interesting. This very sovereign God, the Messiah, Paul talks about there in verse 5, says that he longed to have Jerusalem come to him, to choose him. That was his desire. That was his will. And yet, Jerusalem didn't. Jesus said, now your house has left you desolate. So there is an, an imminent aspect to our choice that can seemingly trump God's sovereignty. God wants us to come to him. He, he desires to have everyone uh, be saved. And yet, obviously, a lot of people choose not to be saved, not to come to God. God understood this from the very beginning. Your quote in the bulletin, you should read through it. It's an interesting quote from John Wesley talking about God's perspective. God doesn't really have things surprise him. God is always previous. That means God's always first. God always comes first. He always knows what's going on. And when God decided to create mankind, God knew in advance, because he's God, all those who would choose to follow him, all those who would choose not to follow him. He has that aspect of what we call foreknowledge. In in God's perspective, it's not really foreknowledge because it's not something that lies ahead of him. But from our perspective, it's foreknowledge. So God knew who would choose him and who would not. And God elected those who would choose him. And here's where it gets difficult. Here's where it gets tricky. Because we say, well, if God chooses those who choose him, then what about the ones that he created that wouldn't choose him? Why did God go ahead and create them? You'll have to ask God. See, again, here's the thing. Can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? You know, we come up with all these little conundrums that we think trip God up, and God has to just chuckle, you know, because they're not a problem for him in his sovereign, infinite mind. But we look at him and we say, hold it, how can that be? What's going on? Here's what I know. God is love. Here's what I know. God gave us his only begotten son. Last week I was in Moab uh, for Whelan. And we went down a trail that was a very narrow trail back into a canyon that ultimately led up onto this ledge that was fairly narrow. And these jeeps were coming towards me. And this is supposed to be a one-way trail, right? And, and the jeeps are coming towards us. And I'm thinking, what, don't they know that this is a one-way trail? And of course, they go to the right side in by the mountain. And I'm over here on the ledge looking down 200 feet. I look over the ledge and there's a crunched jeep down at the bottom. 
I'm sure it's been there for years. But, but I saw it. It did not escape my notice. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, these guys are going the wrong way at the wrong time. We're right at this narrow ledge, and I'm looking down, and I'm driving. And, and so anyway, somehow I made it past. So we get down to the bottom, and I'm talking to the people I'm riding with. I said, didn't those Jeeps know that this is a one-way trail? And my co-writer said, yeah, but we were the ones going the wrong way. <laughs> See, we think we know things. But we don't really know as much as we think we do. So when you are confronted with something you don't understand, rely on those things you do understand. Go back to the fact that you know that God is a God of love. See, in the context here, this really is talking about God's faithfulness. It's not talking about God's severity in the context here in Romans 9, it's talking about God's faithfulness to Israel. Yes, Israel has rejected him, but ultimately we will see in chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 that this was always a part of God's plan and that God was going to be faithful to Israel, that Israel will come back to God in great numbers. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But it's always been God's plan that the Gentiles would come into the fold. He knew that there would be those in Israel who would not choose him. It says here in verse 25, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in that very place where it is said of them, you are not my people, they, there they will be called the children of the living God, referencing us, the Gentiles. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the numbers of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have been like Sodom. We would have come like Gomorrah. So God always planned to introduce the Gentiles into the fold of faith. Goes back to Hosea, to Isaiah. Many scriptures talk about the Gentiles becoming a part of God's body. So this is not a surprise to God. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. So in other words, there were many in Israel who literally lived as though they were Ishmael. They were children of the flesh. Jesus said in John chapter 8, he was talking to the religious leaders, and they said, we have our father Abraham. And they were, of course, trying to kill Jesus. And Jesus said, you're not of Abraham. If you were of Abraham, you wouldn't be trying to kill me, one who's told you the truth. Abraham didn't do that. He said, you're of your father the devil. God, John the Baptist said, is able from the stones to rise up sons to Abraham. The issue we're talking about here is belief, faith, just like the little kids said, just inviting God into your heart. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So God was not surprised by Israel's unbelief. God was not by surprised by the influx of Gentiles who chose to come to faith. It was all part of God's 
plan. But God will be faithful to Israel. We will see that. Even today, beginning back in 1948, as Israel is reintroduced as a people, God's promises begin to lay out, and we begin to see them coming to fruition. Talks about in Isaiah chapter 11, the fact that there will be a second time, this was before the first time, a second time that God will call his people back to the land. Isaiah wrote that in Isaiah 11, about 700 B.C., couple hundred years later, they would be taken captive into Babylon and then later returned to the land. But Isaiah said there will be a second time that they will, will return to the land. That's what we have seen in our lifetimes with the, the rebirth of the nation of Israel. God will be faithful. So do I understand God's sovereignty versus man's free will? Not fully, probably not even very much. But I know this, that God is faithful that God loves each one of us, including his people Israel, and that God's word will not fail. It will accomplish that for which he has purposed it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thankful, thank you for the promise of your word that assures us you will never leave us or forsake us. Sometimes we see through a mirror dimly, Lord. It's difficult to understand how you work. It's a quaint saying, but it's really very true. You work in mysterious ways sometimes. You didn't answer Job when Job was defending himself before you. You just pointed out the fact that you're God and it's your game. And we get to play and we thank you for that. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be a part of this life, a part of this purpose that you have in humanity. So I pray for every person here this morning who has come to you by faith. I pray that you would strengthen their faith. I pray for Evan as he continues his walk of discipleship, that you would strengthen him in your word. Fill him with your spirit, Lord God. And for all the rest of us, the very same. But for those who have heard the message this morning but have yet to choose you, Lord, I pray that you would convict them by your spirit of righteousness, sin, and judgment. That they might come to faith in Jesus Christ. And just as, as D.L. Moody said, they would enter through the doorway that says, Come, all ye beloved of the Father. And they would walk through that door into eternal life. And that they would turn around and look on the other side and see chosen from before the foundations of the world, elect and holy. We give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and we're going to conclude with that hymn, His Name is Wonderful.
Let's gather around. Share time of worship and testimony. Wouldn't it be a great problem to have that we absolutely could not make this circle because we were so crowded? What an awesome problem that would be. As it is, we're squeezing in. So, prayer requests, testimonies of God's greatness and faithfulness, things that you want others to know that you know. Anyone? Okay, sorry. Oh, thank you. Sorry, Sharon, I didn't see you. Man, Chris Singer. Chris Singer, young man. I think he was 26 or something like that. He's 24, very young, had a stroke, but it sounds like he's doing better, but still needs pr- our prayers. Amen. Thank God for his goodness. Yes, Joanna. Amen. You know, God is a fast healer. He, he does his work pretty quick. I went to play golf on Friday, and I saw Al Pryor out there, and I found out later that he was, like, back at work two days after his surgery or something like that. I mean, four days? Okay. Still pretty incredible. So God is good. Good healing. Yes, Emily. Ellie. Prayers for Hayden's brother, Briston. Okay, we'll definitely do that. Yes, Kelly. Kelly. 